This is really, really uh, encouraging for me to be here. I've, you know, watched Tom over the years. I don't know if he remembers a time at the Billy Graham Center years ago where you and I were a part of a, a larger conference. You were presenting and I was presenting, but I, you know, Tom and I have crossed paths over the years. Uh, in the last few years, like he said, we've, we've collaborated on some stuff, but um, I've watched Tom pioneer things, especially in the field of worship. And then obviously, m most recently in the field of, uh, of, of unity and his heart for unity. But I remember so much of what Tom did to equip, uh, equip the church in worship and for worship and worship leaders way, way before I knew there was a worship leaders retreat. And so I am, I'm delighted, Tom, uh, and I honor you tonight. And that's, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm, 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 I'm really honoring a pioneer that blazed many, many trails, and uh, it's a privilege to be here. And then uh, to meet Scott, it's going to be fun. You know, just to, when, you know, whenever God teams you with new people, God's always up to something, you know? And it's just a delight for me to uh, be under Scott's ministry. I told Tom earlier, I said, it'll be nice for me to be under the Word. You know, when you are pastoring and you're doing a lot of the uh, of the preaching. Our team now does a lot of it too, but uh, but still, uh, to be under the word, how many of you know that's an important thing? To be under the word, not just always delivering it, but actually allowing the word to minister to you. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to be teamed with Scott here. Uh, a couple quick things before we get into it. Now, by the way, I need to say this. Um, you all have a handout for tonight, right? It's like, uh-oh, as a handout, like very intimidating, right? Like we're gonna move from inspirational, devotional to clinical and seminar and almost academic. I, I hope you don't feel that way. Um, when, when Tom um, offered for us to do handouts if we wanted to, I actually um, did this tonight especially because I wanna lay some foundations for us. And so um, if you are okay with that, I know it's, it, it, it's like working through a worksheet, all right? Like going to school. But you know what? If we can lay some foundations for what Scott's going to present tomorrow, and then uh, I'll be teaching tomorrow afternoon, and then Scott tomorrow night, I, I, that's, my, that's my intent here, is to really lay some foundations for us. Uh, Tom's heard some of this stuff, so some of this is basic. Some of this will be basic to you, but how many of you know that sometimes it's good to get back to basics, right? That's cool. Uh, a couple things really quick before we get, um, get into it. The, 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 the devotional book, the 40-day devotional called I Am, it's, it's 40, a 40-day 40 journey in the character of God, and that's been a blessing to a lot of people. That's back there. And um, um, it was nice to hear uh, Dan, by the way, I meant to say this too, and again, it's not just kind of throwing out kudos. It's, 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 it's recognizing something. And I, about two-thirds into the worship time, I recognized, uh, Dan, you didn't do a lot of talking. You didn't really interrupt our worship. And a lot of worship leaders that kind of worship and cheerlead at the same time, and, and sometimes, and, and I'm not being critical, but sometimes we can kind of get in the way. And you didn't do that tonight. And I, I noticed that. And that was really, really sweet to just be allowed to worship the Lord in an unhindered way. And I loved that. So... Bless the Lord for that. So the other thing, this DVD, this is m meant for small groups. It's the best way forward. It's, it's a series I, I've done on the Beatitudes, just 20, 20 video sessions with workbook. The workbook, um, you can cop, make as many copies as you want. You just buy one workbook and then make a bunch of copies for whoever wants it. So um, if you have more questions, that's back there. And uh, trust something will be a, a blessing to you. So... Um, I really want to get to uh, the latter part of this, of this talk tonight. Um, to get there, I'm going to just lay some foundations here. You're welcome to fill in the blanks. I found that you know, when people actually have something to do, it's, 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 it's more enjoyable for them. So this is not meant to insult your intelligence, like, oh boy, we're back in school, I'm going to get to fill in the blanks. It's really meant to um, engage you in some way that, that can be enjoyable for you. Yep. Oh, you got the blanks. You know what? I gave you the wrong one. Well, how about that? You've got, you've got it filled in. Isn't that nice? I did that for you. Did the other one have blanks? Okay, this one didn't have blanks. You know what? If you want to scratch them out, that's just fine. But actually, isn't that nice? I was, I, to be really honest, Tom, I was kind of feeling bad that tonight, see, tomorrow I don't feel bad, you fill in the blanks. But I thought tonight, you know, after all this wonderful worship, to kind of move to something that's a little more clinical, I just was unsure. And so the fact that, that I have served you by filling in your blanks, now I feel good. I can sleep tonight. This is really good. Okay, good. You've already got the blanks filled in. Isn't that fun? So really, what, what we're doing is we're laying some foundation 
on the love of God, uh, the, 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 the prophetic word that came tonight, uh, don't grow weary of letting me express my love. Don't grow weary in letting me love you, the Father said. And, and that was right in line with where I felt like God wanted us to go tonight and laying some foundation for all of us together tomorrow. Um, tonight we're talking about the fact that God wants intimacy with us, but to get there, I want to lay down, I want to lay some foundations here for us. Um, when Tom mentioned this conference to me, he said, look, we want to talk about the character of God. We want to talk about Christ in us, the hope of glory, the power of Christ in us. Um, we want to talk about our identity in Christ. We want to talk about what that, uh, what that means, how we apply that as a church. And then he said, we want to see what that means for us as a church in the 21st century. How, how does that speak to us in a bigger context of our world, a bigger context of our culture, a bigger context of, of our society? And so um, here, especially the first part of this talk tonight, it's, it's, I, I trust you'll be inspired, but I'm also um, approaching it a little apologetically. So that like uh, sometimes every so often I have a chance to talk to university students and uh, they have a lot of questions about God and about why the Bible says this and if God is a God of love, why this? Have you ever had that kind of conversation? So if God is a God of love, why? If, if God is a God of love, why is there suffering? Why is there hell? Why are, we get those questions and when we're speaking especially to millennials or Generation Z, uh, which, which is not my generation, but I understand some of the questions and so as I thought about tonight, I wanted to both inspire us by the grace of Jesus, and I also wanted to, um, to help us think through some things about the love of God so that we can unpack that, especially to the emerging generations that have a lot of questions. There was a recent um, poll done uh, about Generation Z. Now, Generation Z is the generation of elementary age kids and junior high kids that, that now are the generation beginning to form under the millennials. So the millennials have their particular snapshot. Generation Z are these younger, younger kids and as they're getting into middle school, junior high, uh, recent polls said that uh, one-third, one-third of Generation Z uh, are identifying as atheists. That's never happened. We thought, you know, it was challenge, challenging to communicate the gospel to millennials. Well, Generation Z, uh, it's, 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 it's part of the culture we're in. And so um, to know how we can give um, these young men and women an answer is part of, part of our call to... Uh, make uh, make the gospel live for them, and I I think that that when we see how God moves out of this core of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it'll be such an encouragement to us tonight, and also give us perhaps maybe some answers, maybe some maybe some questions you've had about God's love. So the first part tonight is really dealing with some basics about God and His character. So we 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 know in First John four eight. We know that God is love, yes. Um, because God is a trinity of persons, his very nature proves that love is eternal. Now, I, you know, we think about this, and for a long time, and Tom's heard me share this before, um, for a long time I think we've thought that the trinity was just one of those doctrines that you accepted by faith, don't understand it, let's just kind of move on, right? It's three and one, one and three. We try to get our minds around it. We can't, so we just accept it by faith and move on. And I understand the mystery of it, but there's something about the fact that God forever, for all eternity, has been a divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you why I'm starting there. I'm starting there because when I do have the privilege of talking to university students, I will tell you something that really speaks to them is this issue of relationship. They're, they're all about relationship. They're all about community. And when we can start by saying, do you know what? Relationship is not just an idea. Relationship is eternal because God himself, from the biblical point of view, from the biblical worldview, God is eternal community. Perfect oneness, but also threeness. And the relationship part is what grips a lot of students today. For the last 20 years, it's been kind of this renaissance and understanding how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are a communion with one another. And so when we, think about, when we think about love, and we think about it this way, if you're talking with a Muslim and, and you're dealing with um, an Islamic concept of God, one person in the divine, Allah, well, when there was no creation, how, what, how do you know what Allah was like? I mean, what, who was Allah? How, how, how do you know what he's like except that he told you, well, I'm, I'm love, I'm, I'm this, and we have to take it by faith if you're a Muslim. 
Well, contrast that with a biblical view of God, which unpacks over, over centuries this understanding that God, as we understand now, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People will say, well, that's, you know, that's just such an inferior understanding of God. Well, I, I, I come back to them and say, oh, not, not at all. I mean, realize if there, was just, if there was just Allah, how do you know he was love? You don't. But the biblical unpacking of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is so amazing because what that says is love is eternal. There's always been an object of love. love ha you have to have an object for love to be verified. You don't know that love is there unless there is something or someone to, to love. The fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally loved one another says that love is eternal. Don't let anybody ever tell you that a Trinitarian understanding of God's nature is somehow inferior. By the way, if you're wondering why I talk so fast, it's because I, I drove five hours today, but I didn't drive, as, I didn't drive as, as long as Scott did, so I guess I have no excuse. No, there's so much material, so I don't want to fire hose you tonight, but I do want to make sure that we get through this in a timely way so that you'll come back tomorrow and not be too fatigued. But, but to see God's nature as a communion of, of persons, it, it, it says that I am made for community and for relationship. This speaks to people. This, you know, it, can, it takes kind of the mystery and brings it down to, oh, yeah, I get relationship. I get the value of relationship. So you're telling me that God's very nature proves that the idea of relationship is eternal? And I say, yes. God, God's, we, we can say that God is love not just because he's revealed it and revealed himself as a God of love, but because his very nature shows that love has existed. There's always been an object of love. The Father's always loved the Spirit and the Son, and the, and the, and the Son has always loved the Father and the Spirit, and so forth. So if, if, if God, as the eternal divine community, in, is love in his core being, then I think it's reasonable for us to look at everything God does through the lens of love. So I want to uh, tackle some thorny questions here a little bit. Okay, here's one. So first, why did God create humankind? Now, see, one of the things about having the answers already is you've got the answers already, so I can't build up to them. I can't build. It's the only bad thing. I'm glad for you you don't have to fill any blanks in, but for me, I'm having to just kind of give it to you and then explain it rather than build up dramatically to the answer. Why did God create humankind? Well, to give himself to them. Now, you say, you say why would you say that? Okay. Uh, I get the fact that we were made to worship. Yes, we worship because God's worthy of receiving worship. Yes, all of that is absolutely true. One of the things that I hadn't thought about, though, was the idea that if God is an unselfish God of love, and I, if I say to people, God made us to worship him, it can come across that God is some kind of an ego-centered being. That, okay, well, God, you know, like he didn't have enough angels in heaven worshiping him. He had to make humans to do that, too. And when I'm asked that question, and sometimes I'm asked that question, and I can say, well, it, it's not quite like that. When we say, and I love that Scott's going to be talking about uh, being made in the image of God tomorrow. You know, when we say that, that we are made to worship, it's, it's more accurate to say that we are made in the image of God. And if God in his very nature loves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love one another, then also in his very nature, there is a sense in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit have eternally adored one another. How many of you know that every good thing comes from God? Okay. How many of you know worship's a good thing? So somehow worship has its origin in the very nature of God. So it's not like that, that, that the Father, Son, and Spirit worship each other the way we worship God as creatures to our Creator, but if we expand our understanding of worship to define it as the, the ability to adore, in that sense, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been adoring each other for all eternity, just like they've been loving each other for all eternity. So when God makes humankind, male and female, in his image, you know, the, the, the ability to adore just came with a package. It's not like God is an ego-centered God needing more worshipers. It's that God so selflessly gives and loves that he made us in his image and the ability to adore just came with the package. You know, we are going to worship something. It's like the old Bob Dylan song, you're going to serve somebody. Well, that's kind of dating myself, but some of us will remember that. You know, you are going to worship. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to have you worship the most valuable being in all of creation. When God calls us to worship him, it's not about 
him being self-focused. It's about him loving us so much to give us, to stamp us with his image and then call us to worship that which is most valuable, himself. So a lot of people struggle with this. Well, God, it just feels like God is being, is, is being ego-centered. All right, so maybe we think about it this way. If God is who he is, which he is, God, and he is the eternal, most, most incredible being in all eternity, in all existence, then for God to invite you to worship him, he is actually inviting you to his joy place. You got to know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been, ha have been in eternal, perpetual joy. And so when he, when he calls you to worship him, it would be actually selfish of God to keep you from the party. I'm not trivializing God when I say that. For God to say, um, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to let you worship yourself. I'm going to let you worship your money. I'm going to let you worship something else. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a humble God, so you don't have to worship me. Actually, that would, that would not be a kind thing for him to do because God himself is the most enjoyable person in ever in the universe. So when he calls us to worship him, it's not because he's an ego-centered God. It's because he wants you to enjoy the joy. So, see, that it's just everything about, if we see God through the lens of love, so much makes, makes sense. A self-first life, I don't know if this is in your notes, but a self-first life is the most damaging and destructive way of living. A self-first a self life. We'll get into this a little bit tomorrow afternoon. Um, the understanding of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the divine communion is really radical. And here's one of the takeaways. Um, we call, we, we, we talk about the Father and the Son and the By the way, Tom, you're right. I'm really loving this in the round deal. This is just, this is, I'm just, you can rove here. It's just fun. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, when we, when we speak of the idea that the Father is a person, the Son is a person. We talk about three persons in the one God. Okay, well, what does, how does that define personhood? If the Father and Son and Spirit are persons, which they are, then, then somehow the whole idea of being a person is given to us and defined there in their relationship. You say, okay, kind of get out of the weeds. What do you mean? Okay, think about this. What makes the Father a person is that he has eternally been focused on two others and not himself. Personhood is defined in the character of nature of God as radical other-centeredness. We, we confuse the, the ideas of person and individual, and the idea of being a person and an individual are radically different, pulls apart. God is actually rescuing you from being an individual and restoring you to being a person. Because personhood is defined by total other-centeredness. That's the way personhood is defined within the Godhead. And that has enormous ramifications for the way we do family, the way we do church, the way we treat each other. It's enormous. So, so self-first is the most damage, damaging and destructive way of living. And God is restoring us to actually living other-centeredly in his love. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow afternoon. Okay. Um, third, here's a good question. Why does God command us to give him all the glory? You read, for example, in Isaiah 42, uh, where God says, I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. And you look at that and you think God's a ball hog. How many of you are basketball players? Any basketball players here? Okay. So you know what a ball hog is, right? Here's the guy or the, or, or the woman who, um, who gets the ball like, and, and dribbles it all the way down, doesn't pass it to anybody, and tries to make the shot himself or herself. You know, they're, 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 they're hogging the ball all the time. They want to score most of the points. We call them ball hogs. So when we hear this, God wants all the glory, we think, well, God just being a ball hog. It's, that's, that's, that's not it at all. Again, when God says, give me all the glory, all he's doing is he is just ask, calling us to, to, to be and state what is real. 
because everything we have goes back to God. Every bit of the credit goes to God. All that we are is rooted in God. We wouldn't be here except for God. That's, that's the truth of it. Now, if God were to allow you or I to ever think that we could take credit for something as if we could do it, he would be allowing us to believe a lie. Well, how, how cruel is that for God to purposely allow me to believe a lie that I could actually do something in and of myself apart from God? So God in his big father heart of love says, listen, I'm going to call you to give me all the glory so that you never fall in the deception of the lie that you can do something of your own. Because once you start believing that lie, that will surely lead you on the path of, of destruction. Isn't that kind of God not to share his glory with you? Isn't that good? See, when you start looking at God through the lens of love, it really does change things. So to, the reason he doesn't, uh, he commands us to give him all the glory to protect us from the deception that we can live independent from him, which would ultimately lead us to death. Here's a fourth one. Why is God silent at times? Now again, this is, this, this is one of those answers I wish you didn't have. I wish I could build this one. This is a good one to build up to. But why, have you ever wondered why God doesn't always answer prayer or doesn't answer prayer when you want it? It's like, okay, I've been praying for, you know, for weeks, months, and he's just silent. Have any of you had a tough time in those occasions when God's been silent? Anybody here? Me, man, both, both hands, both feet, all toes. It's, I'm telling you. It's, I mean, there's some times when I've desperately needed something from God, no answer, and I'm thinking, okay, God, I'm giving you a little bit more latitude, but I need an answer. Well, I, I was um, some years ago struggling with this, and I remember God, again, challenging me to see this through the lens of love. And as I was struggling with not hearing, the more I struggled, the more anxious I became, the more angry I became, until all of a sudden, it, I, it dawned on me why God was being silent. See, that anger and those anxieties, they were down here. And God, God was not answering me, not because he didn't love me, but because these toxins had to come to the surface. They had to bubble up. And I love, it's just one of those little still small voice things that you have from God. And I began to realize, well, God, I, I understand why you haven't answered me yet because these things were down in my emotions and I, I needed to see them. Yes. And I needed, you to, 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 I needed to allow you to help me to cleanse these things. Yes. And I'll never forget, this is what I felt like the Lord spoke into my heart. He said, why would I give you answers when I'm trying to save your life? Now, of course, he gives answers. And, and, and he, gave, he, he, he gave me the answers I was looking for, but see, he knew that the fear and the anger lurking down here were, were, were destroying me. So if I give you a, just a quick answer to what you're asking for, you're not going to identify those things that are lurking in your heart. And I just want to see those come to the surface so we can deal with those things, cleanse them, and move. Isn't, isn't God good? So good. Everything God does is because of love. Here's a good one. Um, why does God get angry? Why does God get angry? You've got the answer there. God's anger is his protective love in, ang in action. God doesn't get angry at us. He gets angry for us. So let me kind of lead you to that place. You remember in Exodus uh, 20, um, when, uh, when the people are confronted with this, this uh, uh, amazing display of the glory of God, thunder and lightning bolts, all that stuff. At Sinai, they saw a revelation and manifestation of God's power that was absolutely mind-blowing. And they didn't really know what to do with that. Interestingly, later on, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in the first prophecy he had as a young prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah actually goes back to the Sinai moment. He goes back to Exodus. And Jeremiah, centuries later, looks at that moment of Israel's history when they were constituted as a people and, 
And, and God, through Jeremiah, says, I remember how you followed me through the desert. I remembered how as a bride you loved me. And you followed me through the wilderness in a land not sown. And I, that's an amazing way to frame the Exodus. Jeremiah was framing it as, as honeymoon time. So God, you know, when he gets his people, he's been looking forward to this for, what, 400 years? They've been in captivity. So, oh, and all the people, right? So God, and I want to say this again reverently, but it, it, it is as it were that God displayed himself it, as, as if disrobing himself and, and showing the fullness of his power and glory. In God's mind, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to uh, intimidate the people. He was, he was being who he was and who he is, this God of glory. And they didn't understand. And so they say to Moses, 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 we, we can't handle a God like that. You, you be the mediator, Moses. You be the one between us and God. And, and Moses just, it, 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 he's incredulous. He says, don't you, don't you see what God's doing? God is showing himself this way to you to protect you from sin. See, God saw that when they, when they went into, when they were going to go into the promised land, God knew they were going to face giants. God knew they were going to face really big obstacles, big cities with big walls. So God in his big father heart of love says, look, I'll tell you what, I am going to give them such a display of who I am that when they do go into Canaan, they'll have such a vision of me, it'll make the giants look like mere grasshoppers. And the people didn't understand. Oh, no, we don't want a God like that. Do you know, that to me is one of the great tragedies. Is there so many, so many Jesus followers that will go just so far with God, but they don't understand. Why is God this way? And they stop. Moses, we, don't, we, we, we can't relate to a God like this. And I think it broke God's heart. Because God wasn't trying to intimidate them. He was trying to protect them. Another, another story from the Exodus. This, this actually is Moses, personal with Moses. So remember um, the burning bush, right? And, and Moses is um, encountering the majesty and the glory of God. And then God speaks out of the bush and, um, and calls Moses to this assignment to set his people free. And then Moses begins his dialogue with God. You know it well, all these excuses. Well, God, you know, I, I can't talk very well. I stutter. Well, who made man's mouth? I will be with you. And then later on, he even gives, gives him his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece. Well, God, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Well, God, they're not going to believe me. Well, then throw your rod down. It becomes a snake and then pick it up. You know, all through that chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus, Moses is, is deflecting the assignment through all of these excuses. Uh, get somebody else. And then, that, then he gets honest. In about, I think, verse 13 in chapter 4, he gets honest and he says, well, God, send somebody else to do it. And then in verse 14, we read, and the Lord's anger grew hot against Moses. Now, I, you look, I'm sure you do too. You know, we look at that and we look at through our human lens and we say, well, Moses, you just irritated God. You just went one, one step too far. You just bugged him. You know, you know, he was very patient with you, you know, answered your excuses, and then you got honest, and then, and then you made him mad, because that's the way we respond. Well, that's not the way it is at all. See, God knew that Moses was being offered the most incredible assignment, the most incredible privilege that, was, that, that, that at that point was ever given to a human being. I'm, I'm, I'm going to allow you, Moses, by my power and grace and glory, to humble the mightiest man in the earth, Pharaoh. And, and, and you're going to supernaturally set my people free. What an offer. What a privilege. And Moses was on the verge of missing out on one of the most incredible destinies ever offered. <laughs> so God, again, I would suggest in his big father heart of love says, you know what, Moses isn't getting it any other way. <laughs> so I'm just going to flash my anger real quick, just kind of snap some sense into him. It wasn't that God was angry at Moses. He was angry for Moses. 
Same with us. You know, I've said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I, I want to have such an intimate place with you that you don't have to uh, walk on eggshells with me. Sometimes, you know, we can be so sensitive that we, we, God has to sort of kind of nuance us, just kind of, well, I don't know, if, you know, Steve is really a sensitive guy, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to just kind of tiptoe and, you know. And that's fine when I'm a young Christian, maybe when I'm even a spiritual adolescent, but as I'm maturing, isn't it true that one of the great marks of maturity is directness? Not, not unkindness, but directness. I mean, my wife and I have been married over 40 years. We have a very, very good marriage, and we've, like anybody, we've had to work at it. And part of it is the communication. And if it, at this point in our marriage, if, if I was having to just always be so aware that, that I better frame it this way, because I don't know how Nancy will take it. I better, ooh, I better just kind of hedge my bets here a little bit. What would that say about my intimacy with my wife? See, you're not really that close. So I said to the Lord a long time ago, I want to get so close to you that you can be, I know you'll always be loving with me, but I don't want you to have to beat around the bush. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but burning or otherwise. I, 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 I want you to, to be able to just, just lay it out because I know you'll always do it in love. And I want, to be, I want to be a person that can be trusted with your directness. He doesn't get angry at us. He gets angry for us. Okay. Okay. Why is there a hell? This is a big one. And I know you've probably heard a lot of answers to this, and I'm not saying this is the best one. This is just one that has helped, especially when, it, when I've talked with, um, with young people who have a hard time with this one. So um, the answer that, that I gave you there is that there's a hell because God respects human choice. God respects human choice. If people live for themselves, how will they enjoy a heaven where it's all about living for others? They won't like it. In a way, you know, you've heard it said God doesn't send people to hell. But in a very real way, it's, it's very true that people, people literally send themselves in the sense that if you live for self here, that will be your preference there. God is just giving people their preference. Do you know what? Somebody who has never been made alive by the Spirit of God and begun the journey towards love, other-centered love, and that, that takes us right back to the eternal model of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and total other-centeredness. If, if we haven't begun that journey here and we live our lives totally for self, heaven would be more hell than hell. We have no idea the torment that an environment of love would be to someone who has lived their lives, their life, for themselves. So in a very real way, hell is God respecting human freedom, human choice, which puts a whole different understanding to it. A lot of times we, we frame hell in terms of judgment. It, it is that, I'm not minimizing that. But if we see even, even hell through the lens of love, we understand that God is just allowing people to receive the consequences of their choice. Now, this is a lot of just kind of apologetic work. Some of it's pretty simple. But I wanted to go here before we got to the meat of it here in the last, oh, maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we understood how important this foundation of the love of God is. It, 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 really, it really does... Uh, shape the way we live. Seeing God as the eternal community, perfect oneness, not just a oneness of three individual gods, but that's the very, that's the very issue of personhood being defined as being other-centered, is that we can actually talk about God. Even though it's a bit of a mystery, we can still talk about him as one God, three persons, three persons, one God. It is such a unity of being among the three persons that we can speak of oneness. At the same time, there's distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that the, you know, the Father is the Father because there is a Son. This, 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 this goes to the, this is, this is off script, but this goes to the whole issue of giftedness. Why, as a pastor, why is it important for me and our team to really labor well at helping people discover their gifts. Have you noticed how 
Uh, Paul seems to give a lot of press in his letters to the gifts thing, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and the latter part of 1 Corinthians 12. He gives a lot of, of, of time discussing how we are differently gifted, different functions, but one body. Well, the whole idea of, of distinction and function goes right back to the Godhead. See, the Father will never be the Son. If the, if the three are just interchangeable, you really don't have distinction of persons. Now you might say, well, that's just really heady theology. But where it gets practical is helping people discover their function in the body of Christ is not just a good idea that keeps people bonded to the organization. It's Trinitarian. It goes, it, it's, the idea of distinction and function is eternal. So I put a real deep value on helping people find their gifts, not just because it's a good human thing to do, but because it seems to resonate with the God, the God model, the God community. And it, I mean, it speaks to so much of life. Well, I want to talk here about, about God's great desire for intimacy with us. I, um, and this is really what I want to get to here in our, in our second half of the talk tonight. I once asked a counselor, a Christian counselor, I think he'd been counseling for 20 years. Really good guy, really effective counselor. And I asked him not too long ago, I said, um, what is the number one issue that people have with God? What is the number one issue that Christians have with God? What, what it, as a counselor, what do you encounter as the single biggest problem that people have? And without missing a beat, this is what he said. He said, single biggest problem is people feel, well, God will come through for you, but he won't come through for me. God loves you, but he really doesn't love me. He said, that's the number one counseling issue for 20 years that, that I faced. And there were several counselors in, the, in their practice. You know, I got to thinking about that. And I think maybe we, we need to be re-inspired of how deep God's desire for intimacy with us goes. God is passionate about intimacy with you. So in a way, I, I hope this will build a bridge to Scott tomorrow because I want to go back to Genesis but not cover it the way Scott will. But just, just talk about God's desire for intimacy with you from the Genesis account and ho hopefully this can build a good bridge for Scott. So. When we talk about God's great desire for intimacy with you, I know this is kind of basic, but God made the first people because he wanted to. And, and really simple. Oh, I get that. But, but think about this. God making Adam from the dust was a, a, a sublime pleasure for him. And again, at the risk of, of being... I don't want to in any way be inappropriate, but I do want to be honest. I think, um, I think that God created the intimate physical relationship in marriage so pleasurable so that we would have some understanding of how pleasurable it was for God to create. Of course, it, it, it has nothing to do with, with, with physical sensation with God, but, but the pleasure piece. I, you know, I tell people, I said, you know... Um, one of the reasons why God, God created sex is because in marriage is, is because uh, one reason it's so good is because marriage is so hard. And there's something, there's something to that. In that, the bonding that takes place, there's, a, there's a, an obvious pleasure there that goes to a deeper resonance, and that is the incredible desire that God had in forming this vessel of dust, and then taking a rib and forming the female. There was, you know, we just think it was a perfunctory thing for God to do. Well, you know, he's God, he's going to create. Okay, good. It's like he took the Play-Doh and made a man. Whew. So much deeper than that. God really wanted to make Adam. And then he really wanted to make Eve. And he, he the, the pleasure in creation is something that we can just find an echo in in the marriage relationship that we know today, that, we, that's, that some of us um, have experienced today. How do, we, how do we understand God as Father when many of us don't have a good memory of our dads? I, I've wondered that sometimes. I have a good dad. I have good memories. 
But I know a lot of people I've counseled have not. And it's a very important question. How do we understand God as Father when many of us don't have good memories of our dads? You know, it's interesting here that for the, for the Hebrew, in, in Hebrew theology, their understanding of God as creator was like the core. Their understanding of God as Father came out of their understanding of God as creator. That was core for them. Now, Jesus comes and introduces us more robustly to the understanding of God as our Father. Absolutely. But I'm just drawing this, this, this connection that, that for the ancient Hebrew, the, the endearment to the Father. I'm, I'm going to the issue of how can I relate to God as my Father when my memories of my own dad aren't very good? Well, like the ancient Hebrews, relate to God as your creator and know that in the act of creation, there was such pleasure for God. And that was what, that's what the Hebrew understood. When David says in Psalm, what, Psalm 139, uh, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He is celebrating the core understanding that the Hebrews had of God as creator, which formed their understanding of God as father. If God made me, saw me coming, and made me, then I don't have to compare God as my father with my earthly dad if I had bad memories of my dad. A lot of times we try to get to God's father heart of love by being healed of our memories of our dad, and that works to a measure, but sometimes people keep stumbling over that and they can't quite press through. I'm encouraging us to come at it from a different angle and see God as creator who took such delight in not just making Adam and Eve, but from that, saw you coming. He, he knew your name. That's what David says here. You fashioned me before, before I was even here. The days were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Where, where is David's sense of intimacy coming from in Psalm 139? It's coming from his encounter with God as creator who saw him coming, him, David, named David with a destiny that he was going to have as David. And he said, oh my goodness. You know, you probably know that, that David, you know, some traditions hold that David was probably illegitimate which is why he wasn't there being selected for king. When Samuel came looking at all for David's brothers, you know, um, Sam, and, and, and Jesse trotted them all out. Well, don't you have any others? Well, there's one. He's just David. He's the runt. He's watching the sheep. And, and, and some have surmised that it's because he was illegitimate, born out of, out of a relationship that, that, with, that Jesse had who was not his wife. And there was shame involved. So for someone to come from that place of shame to Psalm 139, and celebrate the amazing thoughts that God has for him. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. That revelation of God's appetite and desire to have intimacy with David is coming from this recognition that God made me. God made every single one of us here tonight. And you know why? Because he wanted to. You were wanted by God before there was time. That's a mystery I can't unpack fully. All I can do is just revel in it, just roll. My wife and I have this saying, um, she's a horsewoman. I mean, I, she, she, she was Future Farmers of America in, in California. I was a musician. You, you talk about Mutt and Jeff. I mean, we were just very different, right? And I've learned to really value her love for agriculture and her love for uh, livestock. So when we moved to Nashville, I got her a horse. And we were able to uh, board her horse just five minutes away from our house for 50 bucks a month. Unheard of. There's a whole story, a whole story behind that. Anyway, so our kids, you know, they, they grew up mucking the stalls and, you know, watching Katie Bug. It's her name. Uh, she's gone to be with Jesus now, but Katie Bug <laughs> give birth, you know. And when, when, we, when, when, when we would muck the stalls, you know how that is. Um, fresh straw, fresh, you know, clean it out, it's fresh. What Katie Bug would do is she'd get it, the first thing she'd do is she'd start rolling in it. She'd love the smell of fresh straw, just rolling it, right? So that became a part of our vocabulary. When something really good, good happened, uh, something good really happens in our family, we say, just rolling it. Just rolling it. Well, David is rolling in it here. He is rolling in the wonder that God wanted him. And he came to the conclusion that God wanted him 
not through necessarily the fatherhood door, but through the creator door, which was the ancient Hebrew way. They got to this robust understanding of fatherhood because they realized God created me. He fathered me, if you will. Wanted me. So, yeah. So the first thing we see, God's, how great is his desire for intimacy with you? He made the first people because he wanted to. Okay, then God, here's a good one. God created one person at the very beginning, not two or more people. Why? Because God wanted to say from the very beginning, and for all history, I care about one. I mean, God could have started with the village. I don't think he read Hillary Clinton's book, but I think he could have started with four or five, or he could have started with Adam and Eve just from the get-go. But he started with one. I think that is amazing, because I think it was God's way of saying, forever, I care about one. See, God's desire for intimacy with you is so huge, so huge, that I care about one. God, and then God let Adam feel lonely in his perfect world. You know, you realize that loneliness was something felt before sin. Loneliness was in God's perfect world. So that doesn't sound right, but there was a reason. God let Adam feel lonely in his perfect world. Why? So that he, Adam, could value intimacy at the deepest level. It was good for Adam and for us. It is good to know that we really need to give to each other. Because part of receiving intimacy is, uh, is being open and honest about the emptiness, the empty part in you that needs intimacy. You know, self-reliant people aren't very used to cultivating intimacy in relationship. God, God, I think, allowed Adam to journey for a while to come to his recognition of his need for another so that he could value intimacy. Otherwise, Adam would not have been able to value intimacy with God as much if he didn't have another, another like himself to be intimate with. So we say, well, he, Adam could have been intimate with God. Yes, full stop. But, but there's something about I'm creature, he is creator, that actually... God wanted the creature, Adam, to discover the fullness of intimacy, not just in relationship with himself, but also in relationship with another human being. So that then both of them could even go deeper in their relationship with God. So see, if God, this goes right back to the Trinity. So if God, um, I don't want to get too theoretical here. People, I, I've actually had people ask me, okay, so why is God three and not two? Well, because any more than three is too complex, but any less than three is not enough love. Because if you, if you and another are the focus of each other's love, that's good, but there's something even deeper, and I'm, I'm, I'm using human phraseology here, and I'm very sorry that I'm, I'm taking the divine mystery and trying to, I'm not trying to reduce it, but I'm trying to apply it. If I can step aside and watch two others love and applaud that, that takes me to a depth of humility that I would never know if I was the object of the person's love all the time and they were the object of my love. Two is rich, but, but, but God as three allows for a more comprehensive love dynamic because it... it, it it, it shows the humility part of love where the spirit can just celebrate the father and the son's love and not in any way feel com competition, in any way feel um, uh, jealous. That God is three is so perfect. So God creates Adam. He wants Adam to know that he loves the one. But then he wants Adam to also experience Trinity love, which needed one other. As long as it was God and Adam, it could be just, oh, I am, I am the focus. I am the focus of God's love forever and ever. And that's wonderful, but it wouldn't take Adam to the place of other-centered love unless he could also, oh, you love Eve. Oh, that's cool. I celebrate their love. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, so God allowed Adam to feel lonely in his perfect world in order for Adam 
to develop this desire to value intimacy at the deepest level. Okay, moving forward. God had Adam name all the animals. Why? Now, I, I, I don't want to get into any theological trouble here. So I'm just going to be really simple and just say, I don't know. Okay, that's the, that's the easy answer. But, but I also think that God was genuinely interested in what Adam thought. You say, well, how can that be? How, how, okay, here's, here's what, now you can, you, can, you can totally reject this. Totally reject it. Um, have you ever thought about the fact that God, you know, God having Adam name all the animals, so what, where's the fun in that? I mean, here's the zebra. I don't know what he called him in, 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 in his language at that point. I'll just use English. And God said, yeah, zebra. What is that? Zebra. Well, yeah, I already knew that. How, what, where, where, where's the fun in that? If God knows, knows it all, where's the fun in that? See, here's what I think. I think God is so big, he is not even limited by his omniscience. You say, what do you mean by that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God knows everything, but he is so big and powerful, he can, if he wants to, he could limit his knowledge at any one moment, if he wanted to. He doesn't have to. But I kind of think that God says, you know, I really want to enjoy Adam. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to just, I'm just going to not, not know. If, see, if, we, if, if we say that God has to know everything, we are reducing him to a machine. If we say that God doesn't know everything, then he's not God. Now, God knows everything, but he is so big, not even his omniscience. The core of God is his freedom. God is free to be who he wants to be. And if he in that moment says, look, I'm just going to turn it off here. I'm going to really enjoy what Adam says. I think that's kind of cool. Now, you don't have to accept that, but, but think about the fact that God is, what I'm really getting at is God is interested in what you think. And he uses this story. It's like, what, what is this Mickey Mouse story of God naming the animals? You know, it's like the zoo. This is not Mickey Mouse at all. God had a reason. He really wanted to help us see in the narrative, I'm, I was interested in what Adam thought, and I want you to know I'm interested in what you think. I don't know, but that kind of God is just so amazing to me. And then, God made, it says, uh, there's, there's basically two creation accounts, as you know. There's the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, both divinely inspired. I totally believe they were inspired by God, but they, they are like the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're all inspired, all telling the truth, but they do come at it different, in different angles. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 um, are two different accounts of the creation that at points seem to be a little at odds with each other, and here's one of them. Why? God made all, the made all the vegetation on the third day, but perhaps left the garden bare. Why? And if you read Genesis 1, and uh, again, I don't know if that's in your notes. If not, if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, basically you're going to find, Genesis 1 says that God made all the vegetation on the third day, uh, and, and then made man on the sixth day. Genesis 2, 5 says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, etc., etc. Then God formed the man and breathed life into his nostrils and put the man whom he had formed out of the ground, and then God made to spring up every tree. That, you know, scholars have looked at that and said that seems to be a contradiction there. Chapter 1, vegetation day 3. Chapter 2, vegetation doesn't seem to happen until after the creation of the man. I think a simple solve is that, yeah, God made all the vegetation on the third day, but maybe the garden piece he left bare. I can't say for sure. I'm just trying to reconcile these two accounts. But let's just say that he made the garden bare, makes man, and then lets Adam watch and actually work with God to do in microcosm what God had just done worldwide. You see, that just sounds really speculative. Okay, let me bring it down to where we live. I think God wanted to show uh, I think what God wanted to say to Adam, let's do life together. Let's, let's do it together. So I made everything, but this little plot here called Eden, we're going to do that together. I'm going to make you, okay, and then you're going you're gonna to watch here spring up the vegetation, the trees, and all that stuff, just like, just like it did on the third day. You say, well, how does that apply to me? Well, my dad, my dad and I, uh, growing up, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. And, I mean, I bled Dodger blue. I still do. Uh, this past World Series was just, uh, you know, a catastrophe for me. I've grieved for weeks. Um, 
back in the day, I remember my dad getting me a uh, a mitt and a ball. I used to just play, you know, it's like pretend I was playing baseball in the backyard. We had concrete block walls, so you could do that. And I took tape and made a little a little bullseye or a little strike zone. And, you know, I'd listen to my transistor radio, Sandy Koufax, you know, and all that stuff. And I was pretending I was Sandy Koufax. And when my dad got me a mitt and a glove, oh, my, uh, a mitt and a ball, oh my goodness, a brand new glove, oh my goodness, I was, it was amazing. But then, a little later on, my dad brought his old, like, 1940s glove out when he used to play ball in school. And he said to me, let's, let's go play catch. That took me to the moon. Said, okay, here, go play ball. Well, now let's go do it together. I think that God, perhaps, left this one little plot open so that he and Adam could do it together. I don't know what that does to you, but the, a, God, a God that uses this to say, let's do something together. Now, think about this. If God, now, if God rested, if, the, if, this is, if this is a way to look at it, if God rested from creation but left that little plot of ground to do it together with Adam, then that meant that in his seventh day of rest, on, his, on the seventh day God rested, that means in the season of rest, God was mentoring Adam in that little garden. Letting Adam sort of do it with him as God in microcosm did it again with Adam. Which if that was true, think about this. God working with Adam was a part of the way he rested. God working with you is a part of how he rests. You are a joy to God. Big joy. You say, God, I, I don't know, man. I, God has to sandpaper me. God, I'm just, I'm just a gnarly person. I want to tell you, this tells me that God delights in mentoring you. God delights in working with you. It is a joy to him. It brings, yeah, full stop. Let's finish. God was so transparent with us, allowing us to see the chaos so that we would know that he will always be there hovering over our dark and empty places, bringing life. If I were God's press agent, I would have done Genesis 1 this way. I would have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. I would tell God, look, God, you do not want to say, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And chaos, you don't want to, you don't want to say that. People will not trust you. I mean, just, just, you created, that's all they need to know. Get to the let there be light stuff. But don't tell, don't, don't, don't tell them that latter, that latter part of verse one. You know, the spirit of God brooded over the chaos. No, 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 God, that's not a good idea. I think it's a marvelous picture of God's transparency. He is so honest. He wants, see, I think he wanted you and I to see the picture of his spirit brooding over the chaos so that we would forever know that he can brood over the chaos of our lives and bring forth life and bring forth light. What a God. He's just, he's just amazing. I, you know, I, 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 when Scott said, just to, we want to impart something to you, I guess there's just one thing tonight. Just get infected with the fact that God really digs you. And he wants intimacy with you. God so wanted intimacy with you and me that he was willing to endure the pain of separation within his own divine community in order to provide a way of, for relationship with us. I don't know if how this, how this grabs you, but it goes to the core of wonder for me. That God who had known perfect love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so wanted you. God the Father wanted you. God the Son wanted you. God the Spirit wanted you. That they, okay, we will endure a pain, and there was pain, that, that we, they, it was always known in the, in the God council, because God doesn't change, but the moment of that pain was very real. I don't think that the, that the father and the son were just kind of reading the script. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, okay, it's time for me to quote Psalm 22. I think it's deeper than that. I mean, I, I don't think I have the answer. Martin Luther, Martin Luther fasted for a long, long time over this. He just sat at his desk, stone-faced, until finally he got up, one of his associates said, after hours and hours, no food, no water, just sat there. Finally, he said, who can know this? Who can, who, who can ever understand God asking God why? Because that's exactly what happened on the cross. The very f we don't know the full mystery of it. The very fact that deity asks deity why goes to the profundity of this, that the separation and the pain that they endured for you. Oh, what a God. What a God. And lastly, God wants intimacy with us so much that he puts his spirit within us. He puts his spirit within us. This is ultimate belonging. Ultimate belonging. You know, the idea of baptism is not just about empowering. It's about being immersed. And the way, one of the ways God immerses us is he actually, <laughs> he actually immerses himself in us. You, I mean, kind of look at your being. God lives there. God in you. This is what Tom was, was talking about when we were talking about this conference. Christ in you, the fullness, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ, and Christ dwells in us by his Spirit. It takes a lifetime to unpack that, but just, just when Paul says in, in Romans 8, we have not received the spirit of fear, but the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. <sighs> that says something about how close God wants to be. He says, okay, I want to be so close, I'm going to come and live within you. We, st we, still, we still approach God almost like a religion. God, God, would you, would you come? And I get that. I totally understand. God, we're down here struggling. Won't you come and help us? In a way, what more can he do? He's already walked inside your body, inhabiting your spirit. That's how close he wants to be. I mean, he's there when I'm really being gnarly? Absolutely. That's how committed he is. That kind of commitment to be with you when you lie, to be with you when you are unkind, to be with you when you swear. But he's still there. It's kind of like, that passage in Psalm 73, you know, I was like a brute in your midst. I was, I was a, a, a brute before your presence, the psalmist was saying. But you kept me by the hand. Those of you who are parents, you know, you've had your toddler, right? Just go berserk on you, like in the store. And, you know, and you're holding his hand. I'm not going to let you go. You are really, you're really being... A little monkey right now, but I'm going to hold your hand. And that's what the psalmist was saying. And he said, you know, I was like a brute beast before you, but you kept holding my hand. And now, whom have I in heaven but you? Who else do I have? When you see how deeply God wants intimacy with you, he has put his spirit within you whereby you cry, Abba, Papa God. I think Scott's going to unpack that a little bit tomorrow. Can you see how much God wants intimacy with you? I'm just absolutely, wonderfully devastated. I'd like uh, Dan, maybe, Dan of the band, Dan and the band, you'd come. Why don't we stand together, okay? There was a, um, Dan, there was a song that you did that tonight, I, I know you probably had something planned, but would you, that one um, about grace, uh, being so free in his grace, grace, that one, can, can, we, can we, as Dan leads us, can we just take a moment, and, and I'll give it back to Tom, but can we, as we sing these words, can we sing them perhaps in a, a little different way? Now, perhaps with a little bit more of an understanding of how much God loves and how much God loves you. 
and this place of freedom that he's brought us into. I just, you know, forget about everything else you're going to do tonight, later on. I know we've got to pack up here. We've got a full day tomorrow. I want to encourage you to be here with us tomorrow. But can we just take this moment and allow the Holy Spirit to just sow this deep in our hearts. Lord, we come to you and we just say, come, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts to see the wonder, just the absolute profound majesty of your desire for intimacy with us. Again, before Dan leads us, can we actually take a posture of a little child and take our hands and stretch them out before the Lord? I know you're all hand raisers because that's how you do it. So can we just stretch out our hands like little children and just receive by faith just a fresh awareness of the amazing love of God. We receive, Lord, as your sons and daughters, your hunger for intimacy with us.